0: Uh, but welcome, my name is Margot. I am the Where love pastor here. Uh, if this is your first time, welcome, we're so glad you decided to come to a weird abandoned theater that's a little toasty right now uh, to spend your time on a Sunday. Hopefully it's getting fixed next week, send the prayers up. Uh, but Brent is the other pastor over here, which you heard Daniel talking about. But we're in this series uh, that's really fun right now called The Comparison Trap, uh, which is a series on comparison, and we decided to do this series, or I wanted to do this series because I found... Uh, At least among the people that I talk with and I know in my daily life, that comparison has kind of crept up in our mindset more than any other generation. And a lot of people have theses on this and have done way more research than I have. But I I would say that I think social media probably has a part to play in why we compare ourselves more now in this generation than any other one because we've never been more aware of what everyone else is doing at any given point in the day than we do now, right? Like, even 10, 15 years ago, we wouldn't know what meal everyone's cooking for dinner. We wouldn't know every single birthday present. We wouldn't know what outfits they were wearing. We wouldn't know what their dates look like. But now we're hyper-aware, we're in this this world of hyper-awareness. And that kind of created a perfect storm, as you will, for comparison to creep into our life. And comparison is uh, really destructive for a couple reasons. Uh, Week one, we talked about how comparison actually erodes our relationships with other people. And the way that it does that is we see what everyone else has, what everyone else is doing. And normally that leads to us thinking kind of ugly thoughts about them, right? Like, oh, they don't deserve that vacation or that promotion, or why is she able to, to find a relationship, and I can't, and like, I have my life in order, and she's a hot mess, and like, we just think these ugly things about other people. So the first thing the comparison does is it breaks down our relationships with other people. Uh, week two, we're kind of, even though it's a three-part series, we, that was how we started with week one, but week two, and now this week, we're dissecting uh, one of the most popular stories uh, that has been carried on in the Christian traditions, is this story called The Prodigal Son. And so part one, we talked about how the comparison trap can sneak in and actually create roadblocks between people and faith. Because uh, what comparison does is we, if you're not comfortable with faith or haven't been doing the faith thing for a while or at all, we look at people that attend church and are like the goody-two-shoes Christians and we think, well, I can't be like that. So I'm on the outside, they're on the inside, and so we like look through this window because we're comparing ourselves to these quote-unquote perfect people and we feel like we don't belong. And so uh, comparison creates a roadblock between us and faith. And so week three, we're going to dissect the second half of that prodigal son story, and that may be a familiar thing to you. If like maybe you didn't go to church, but your mom dropped you off at VBS because she needed some me time, and you're like, oh, this is where I've heard this before. Is that finally coming in handy? Uh, but uh, So just bear with us. As if there's anything I'm saying where you're like, you're missing the whole point, it might have been covered in the previous weeks if you're gone, and you can find all of our talks at eastlaketricities.com talks, videos, or podcasts, or if you have a fancy-schmancy Apple phone, you can go on iTunes, search Eastlake Tri-Cities, and catch up on any of the week's There, so we know summer's hard to get here on a Sunday. So feel free to utilize that. But uh, in this second half of this story, the prodigal son, the lost son, uh, we're talking about. We're gonna start right in, and there's a party going on, and it's a huge party. It's an expensive party. It's a lavish party, and I think we can appreciate lavish parties because, at least for me, I grew up in the silver age of MTV. Not the Golden Age. The Golden Age is when those was only music, like maybe pop-up videos. The Silver Age is when they like started transitioning to reality TV, but it wasn't like the really like, awful kind. It was like the somewhat entertaining kind. Does anyone remember shows like Room Raiders? Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> where they like take a black light to like, a teenage person's room, and you're like, this is only going to go wrong, and stuff like that. Uh, that was highly entertaining. Uh, another show that they had that was pretty popular was... Uh, My super sweet 16, does that ring any bells? Uh, Pretty much they followed these rich kids around for the preparation and then the happening of these lavish 16th birthday parties and totally set my expectations way high. Uh, But you know, I didn't live on Miami Beach, I lived in a log cabin in New Hampshire, so if you wanna see a sweet party, it's usually in a barn and there's haystacks and it's not super exciting. Uh, But up until, like I remember I was like 15 and up until that point, birthdays, We're like an ice cream cake with grandma. So I'm like, 16, they've been holding out for my 16th birthday, right? Like this is gonna be just like the show. Uh, But of course, middle class family log cabin in the woods. Uh, So my 16th birthday came around and I'll never forget, I got two presents. And I'm looking at it and there's like one about yay big and there's one about like yay big. And I'm like, well, car keys can fit in a mighty small box. So, I'm gonna start with the small present. And so, I remember taking it and opening it up. And instead of a vehicle, it was the original Broadway recording of Lay Miz. <laughs> and I was like, I am a geek and I have no life and this is not a car. So, next box. It's gotta be better, right? We can only go up from here. And so, I'm looking at this bigger box. I'm like, a key can fit in there and some other stuff. Like, there, there could be a whole bonanza of presents in this larger box. So I opened it up, and it was a brand new, high technology, memory foam pillow with neck support. <laughs> I was like, wow, super sweet 16, I'm just going to put on a lay Miz soundtrack and cry myself to sleep on my memory foam pillow. Uh, but that was my expectation. But this, this party that we're going to talk about was way better. Sorry, Mom and Dad. I love you guys. Uh, you did a ton for me. but. 16. We're just going to skip over that. uh, Keep the resume clean. And so this party that we see was top-notch. They went out, they like spent all the money, and we're going to jump right in. Uh, So essentially to set up the party, if you're not super familiar with the prodigal son, uh, it's about these, it's an illustration, so it's not actual events. It's Jesus teaching this to people, and he's trying to get a point across. And so us as an audience is trying to be like, what is, what conclusion is he leading us to? So in the first half, just to do a quick recap, uh, there was two brothers, older son, who of course is gonna inherit you know, all the fun stuff, and the younger son, who's just like the heir and the spare, right, in, in case of emergency, deploy younger son, and then, you know, so he was kinda looked down upon, wasn't seen as esteemed, and so he goes to his dad and he asks an audacious thing. He says, hey, I know you're taking a while to die, uh, so could I just get what you're gonna leave me now? And the dad doesn't ask any questions, doesn't talk back, and actually gives him what this younger son asked for, and the younger son takes his money, takes his inheritance, says he goes to a foreign country, and we know he does this because he wants to get out of the hometown where no one knows him and where he can like, be his own person. And he blows his money, they say, on immoral living. So we can connect the dots there. He was up in the club. We know it. We've seen that guy. So he was spending his money, having a good time. Famine strikes the second the bank account zeroes out. So he's in this country, and no one has food, and it's super scarce and super expensive, and he doesn't have money. He finds himself working on a pig farm, which since Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience, we can assume that the main characters are Jewish. And this would be like a super no-no. Because for Jewish people, pigs were seen as like essentially making your soul unclean. Like if you touched a pig, if you ate a pig, if you were around pigs, uh, you would then have to go and cleanse yourself and like ask for forgiveness. So to work with the pigs was essentially making a huge moral compromise as low as you could go. And as he's starving to death, watching pigs that are eating better than him, he recalls his his home, his homeland, his hometown, his dad's farm, as it were. And he says, their servants ate better and were treated better than I'm treated. Uh, So I'm going to make the really hard decision. I'm going to bite my pride, go home, and ask my dad to hire me on like, I know my relationship with my dad is ruined. That bridge is burned, but maybe he'll hire me as a servant because it's better to be a servant than to live in this situation. So he makes a long journey back, rehearses this big old speech about what he's going to say to beg forgiveness from his dad. And once again, he doesn't, he doesn't even expect that being welcomed back is possible, so he's just going to ask as soon as he can, hey, can you hire me out? I'll just be a servant. I'll be a slave. The dad cuts him off mid-apology Like, gives them all these gifts and then throws a party and saying, like, the most important thing to me is that you're here and that you're alive and that you're home. Everything, that all your decisions that you made up until this point, all your unwise choices, all your selfish choices don't matter because you're home. I thought you were dead and now you're alive again. And so we see that he throws this huge lavish party. And so the, the camera, as it were, in this story shifts back to the older brother the one that didn't go off, the one that didn't ask for his money and go and make all these unwise choices. So, what is the older brother doing when this party is happening? Let me see this account in Luke. Uh, Luke writes this down, these words of Jesus, and it says, "Now his older son was in the field, which means he was working, like he was putting in his hours, getting his hands dirty, sweating, like blue-collar job, working his butt off. And as he, the older brother," came and drew near to the house so like quitting time coming home to to rest up he heard music and dancing and so i there's there's a really small part of me that thinks that maybe he got excited thinking like oh maybe the party's for me <laughs> like maybe they're gonna i'm gonna walk in and they're gonna yell surprise and so maybe his heart lifted up a little bit like thinking like oh this is gonna be great well what happens he didn't get a layman's cd but something else happens uh and then he, so before he enters the house, I guess he doesn't like surprises, so he wants to know what's going on. So he calls, ser- calls to one of the servants and asks what these things meant. Like, why is there a party going on in my house that I don't know about? And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. And now this may seem kind of childish, but if you look at what's going on here, uh, first off, why wasn't he invited to the party? Like, the servants know what's going on, but he doesn't know. Like, dad didn't feel the need to send a messenger out to pull him in from the fields to join the celebration. Like, who knows if there's any food left? You know, he's getting a little hangry, a little upset. Um, We also see that they point out specifically, and the servant did this because this is a big deal for this culture. That they killed the fattened calf, and the fattened calf is something that uh, was super expensive, uh, super important, and is often was used to celebrate weddings. So this older—it was probably this older brother's calf that they've been raising for years for when he would become married. And so essentially, they like took his like his wedding money to spend on this party. And so he's pretty mad, and he's like, I am not even going to go in. Like, I am so upset right now uh, that I didn't get invited, that they're using my and calf, and I'm out here working while they're wasting money and partying on this brother that does not deserve it. So his father comes out to this older son because he, he catches wind that he's out, outside sulking. And so, so it says his father came and entreated him, but he, the older brother, answered to his father, Look. These many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, he's definitely not holding back. He's a little mad. Uh, you killed the fattened calf for him. He's saying, like, look. This, guy, this kid has messed up and has gone and wasted your money, and I've been here working my butt off, doing all the right things the right way, never complaining. And then he throws in this, like, you're spending all this money on a party, but, like, you've never let me have a party with my friends. You've never given me a young goat, which are much cheaper than the and calf. And so he's upset. He's feeling like no good deed goes unpunished. And we start asking ourselves, we kind of start putting ourselves in the shoes of this older brother, being like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. Shouldn't faithfulness and obedience be celebrated? Who's getting the party? The one that was the good, the one that behaved and the one that, you know, lived this good life and followed all the rules? No, the party's for the one that messed up. And we can see this frustration bubble up to the point where the brother doesn't even say, you're throwing a party for my brother, right? He says, this son of yours, like he is done. He is so done saying like, I'm not even, he's not my brother anymore. But this son of yours came and was living his life and doing these things. He's not my brother. And so what is, what is the, like these are real points. He's not making up anything. He's not exaggerating anything. He's bringing valid, valid questions, valid argument to the case. And so how does the father respond to to this older son? It says, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So essentially, the, the, the father's saying to this older brother, What's mine is yours. Like, if you wanted to, to have a go and celebrate with your friends, like, all you had to do was ask. All you had to do was ask. You've been with me. Definitely appreciate that. I'm not undermining your hard work and your dedication. But he's saying, it is filling, it is fitting to celebrate this. Because look at he's changing it back again, reminding him, your brother, your brother was dead. Because think about this: they see the son, he goes to a foreign country. Maybe they know where he's going. They hear maybe a famine has occurred. They haven't heard from him in months, years. We don't know. It's a significant amount of time, though. And so this father's probably thinking, my son is dead. He's gone. I've lost a child. And isn't it worth celebrating that he's alive and well and home again? And I think the brother, I think the the father points out this, what's mine is yours, for a very specific reason. Because I think we can fall into the trap of thinking, Well, if, you know, if I don't ask God for anything then I'm better off. Like, I'm better than other people that are always like, oh, God, just give me this, and oh, God, I need this. And, like, they seem pretty high maintenance. Like, I'm a low maintenance Christian. God, you can, like, there's important things out there, so I'm not going to bother you. I'm not going to take up your time. Like, you're helping, you know, save people from natural disasters and famine and war, and like, I'm not going like, to pray and ask you for anything, because you've got much bigger fish to fry. Like, i like. Look how good I am, that I actually don't need you. That I don't I don't need to ask you for anything. Doesn't that give me some sort of brownie points to be this low maintenance, you know, kind of son? Look how great I am. I don't need any help. But what we see if we look at the, the whole story here of this this prodigal son story was that God made, if God had made a bigger deal about the faithfulness and the perfect record of the older brother, then it would paint a completely different picture. He's not throwing a party for the one that that, that was perfect and did all the right things. He's not celebrating that. He's celebrating the one that was lost and came back. Because if, if the story went the other way, if the story went the, the expected route of throwing a party for the older brother that did all the right things and and condemning the younger brother who messed up, then it would send this incorrect message that our value was dependent on how good we were. That our value was dependent on how good we were. And God's saying, no, I am illustrating this story. I am telling this to people so that you can get that out of your head. And I think he's doing it because... The church at this point, the the Jewish church, and I hate to say it, oftentimes in churches in America today, send this message, and sometimes it's unspoken, that you're only worthy to be sitting here if you are like a certain amount of good. Like you have to be a pretty good person to be a Christian. You have to be a pretty good person to be welcomed into church. You have to be a pretty good person for God to see that you have value. And God tells this story to tear down that falsehood to tear it down, to rip it up, saying that our, our value has nothing to do with our resume or our track record. God wanted to undermine all of that, and he wanted to write a very wrong system. And, and this story actually takes place in at the end of two other stories. So he really, like, he's talking to Jewish people, so he pretty much repeats himself three times, so that they can get the point, so they they don't miss it. Because before this, he tells two other stories of things that were lost. First, he talks about a lost coin, uh, where a woman, she has three silver coins. She loses one of them, and she searches her house with a lantern all night, trying to find this, because this is a significant amount of wealth. And when she finds the coin, she throws a party, invites her neighbors, saying, yeah, I got my coin, like, I'm not... As broke anymore yay and then we see this next story of a sheep which may be familiar like if your mom dropped you off at vbs left for me time you may have heard the sheep story where there's a shepherd with a flock and the one sheep wandered off and so he leaves the flock and finds the lost sheep searching day and night finds the sheep brings the sheep home and then celebrates calls people to celebrate with them that he found this lost sheep so he's told these two other stories about a coin about an animal And now he's talking about a person, about a human being, about you and I. And he's saying, years have gone by with this son being lost. And how much bigger the celebration now that he's found. I feel like the father never stopped hoping that that son would round the corner on the driveway, right? Because when the son comes home, it says his father saw him from a long way off. So it's almost like he was waiting, right? Sitting on the front porch just hoping and praying. I haven't seen my my son in years and seasons. I just hope I see him and then seeing him run, seeing him him just barely turn that corner, the father takes off after him to to just envelop him and to, to love on him. What God's illustrating in these three stories is that because in all three stories something was lost and then people spend a small like in the coin that she spends a night looking and the sheep they kind of make it sound like a little bit more time looking for the sheep for the sun years have gone by. What God is illustrating is that a very sensical thing is that the more important something is to you or I should say the more value something has to you when you lose it don't you spend more time searching for it. Like uh, say your kid made you an arts and crafts project and that's lovely and nice, but you have like 7,000 of them and then you misplace it, it goes somewhere and the kid doesn't know about it, so there's no pressure. And you're like, oh man, where did that card go? You may like pull out your junk drawer and like look around, but you're not spending hours and days and weeks looking for it, are you? Whereas if you move to a new house and you're like, oh man... Aunt Ethel's Van Gogh painting that she bequeathed to me is now missing. You would be, like, tearing the place apart. You'd be going on Craigslist seeing if someone was trying to sell it and be shady. You'd be, calling, you'd be filing the police report. You'd be hunting it down. Uh, we see here on this, like, kind of graph, this chart of value, that the more something is worth, the more time that we spend searching for it. And God's trying to say that. He's saying if you are of infinite value... Which I think this story illustrates. If you are of, uh, like, priceless value, aren't I going to spend all the time in the world searching for you, pursuing you, trying to find you, trying to bring you home again? He's celebrating the younger son. So how does God try to deconstruct this corrupt system? Because the world tells us that our value is totally a measurable thing, Right? Like it's it's how good you look, it's how smart you are, it's what your resume looks like, it's what your criminal history looks like or doesn't look like. The the world is going to give you all kinds of things to live up on how valuable you are, but God's trying to break down the system and he breaks it down in the story with the detail of something that we may have skipped over just because it sounds weird and we don't really understand it well. It's this thing called the fattened calf. It's what he used, it was the signifier of the celebration, the main part, the main event of the celebration was this fattened calf being, being sacrificed and being used. So why, why is this highlighted? The servant knows about it, the son knows about it. This seems to be like the most important detail of the party. So why is God highlighting this? And I'd like to think that the answer is, is that red meat solves everything we look through this the older I get the more I think that red meat solves everything except for heart disease but we're going to continue on so the significance of the fattened calf we're just going to talk about this real quick the calf this fattened calf if you look at what what that meant in that day and time which we have to understand right if Jesus is talking to Jewish people in this audience we need to understand what they would already understand So the fattened calf was set set apart at birth, and it was kept in in a nice stall with all the soft hay, and it was fed this sweet wheat and grains. Like, it lived a pretty great life. In the stall, it didn't have to worry about predators. It didn't have to worry about the seasons, the hot. Like, it had shade. It didn't have to worry about it being too cold. And we had to keep in mind that this was not in our like in Walla Walla, where there's like all this beautiful green stuff to chew on or anything like that. This was in like Israel and the Holy Land. And so it's kind of more like sagebrush out there. It's dry, it's arid, and so you do see cattle grazing a little bit, but they're fighting for like one little green leaf. And I mean it's kind of lean lean pickings. And so the fattened calf had this kind of charmed existence because it was fed constantly this awesome diet of this wheat and this grain. It didn't have to search and struggle. And so because it wasn't roaming and getting all the exercise, I got fat, go figure. Uh, so, and for them, if you had an animal that was fat, that was a sign that you were prosperous because you were able to feed this animal all this extra food. And, I, and you see this even today. Some of the most expensive beef that you can buy is this beef called Wagyu beef, and not like the knockoff American Wagyu, but like the actual Japanese, and this like doesn't even look like a steak that we've ever seen before, because we can't afford it, so what makes this so uh, valuable is that all that marbling of the fat intermixed with the muscle just makes it delicious sorry vegetarians it's true uh so this is super expensive and these cat these cattle these wagyu cattle are are kept in a like they have armed guards protecting them because they're so valuable and it's like they're when you breed them you have to like write and ask permission it's like a legal thing it's a huge deal because they're worth so much money and i looked it up and that hunk of meat right there i got this off like a seller from like the asian wagyu beef that right there, which is about eight pounds, was $1,400. Yeah, that's a burger I can't afford right there. So that is just, that's just eight pounds. Imagine an entire cow, how much that is worth. This is the fattened calf, guys. This is how much money you would be throwing on a party if you gave an entire fattened calf to someone or celebrated with that. Because calves weren't practical in that day in society and age. Most people just ate lamb or fish. They are much less maintenance. They didn't need as much food or water. Even regular beef, like the low-grade stuff that you get at Winko, was more expensive than the lamb or anything like that. So beef was, like, super special. You knew something important was happening. Like, in fact, calves are often used for marriages, for marriage ceremonies, because you're like, look how I'm, like, splurging on this, and this is how valuable you are to me. And it all ties in to this, this ancient uh, sacrificial system, which is so foreign to us today. It just feels weird and really archaic. But this sacrificial system was practiced by cultures since like the dawn of time. As far back, not just in Jewish cultures, as far back as they look, you can see that people were like, oh man, there's something bigger than us, and it's probably mad at us because we're not perfect, so what do I do to make it up to them? I'm going to give something that costs me a lot to try to bridge that gap. And cows, cattle, were used for the most important covenants. And covenants are different than contracts. Covenants is between like, you and God, or it's, it's, it's a heart value, and marriage is called a covenant, which is why when a marriage dissolves or falls apart, it hurts way more than your contract falling apart, right? If you sign a contract and someone goes back on it, you know, you fight, you may get a lawyer involved, but it's, isn't it so different than a marriage? Because when, when your marriage falls apart, that hurts your heart right? And that is something you got to work through. And that is a burden you carry for many days because it's more than a contract. It's, you're not upset that a piece of paper is now no longer significant or now no longer a part of your life. You're upset that a relationship is broken. So covenant was that heart contract, that deep heart contract. And for covenants, they would signify it by sacrificing cows, because it cost a lot. So they wanted to secure this heart contract with something that cost them a lot. So the father, using this fattened calf at the party, signifies that, because when the son came home, he was apologizing, the father said, nope, you're part of my family. I don't care what you did, I don't care who you saw, I don't care, you know, your reasons for doing it, you're home, you're part of my family. And he kills the fattened calf to say, and you're not leaving this family. (laughs) Nothing you can do can separate you from my love. Nothing that you, that you did or thought or anything like that can separate you from being a part of this family. And I'm going to make a huge costly sacrifice so that you know it and that everyone else knows it. But the truth in this story is when we, when we zoom out and we look at all the different parts of it, is that we can oftentimes find ourselves not, I think we can connect with the younger brother, because we all make mistakes, but I know I personally can sometimes find myself feeling like the older brother, right? I'm trying to do good, like I'm trying to behave and make all good choices, and then I look around at people making not good choices, and they seem to be having it easier. They're having more fun, they're getting ahead in their jobs, in their careers, in their relationships, and we can become bitter like the older brother, we can become bitter and, and and not want to be around those people. And unfortunately, I've seen it even in, in church environments of people not of the church not welcoming people in because they don't fit their standard. Why should we celebrate them coming to church? I've been here for 20 years. Why should we celebrate these people, even being willing to, to explore what faith looks like when I've been on board since day one? My papa was a preacher, and I, you know, I spent every day in church. Why should we celebrate? these people that have messed up coming to church but the truth is is that none of us actually are the older brother because we have all messed up we've all made misjudgments and fallen short of being the perfect child and when we look at it, when I, when I really truly am willing to sit and look at the mess in my heart that I'm still working through and still dealing with, I realize I actually don't have much leverage to look down at other people's mistakes. And it's sad because we, we lose patience and we get jealous and you know it can make us dishonest for personal gain or, or doing wheeling and dealing to try to save our reputation. It can make us into really ugly people. And it's, it's true, we are imperfect. And I'm not saying this to discourage us because, like, I'm totally in the boat. We're in this together. And God's not, God doesn't highlight the mistakes of the younger brother to discourage us. God doesn't want us to understand that we're all the younger brother to discourage us. Because the younger brother in this story is the one that is celebrated. The younger brother is the one that's received with tears and happiness and joy and celebration. The younger brother is the one that is highlighted. The younger brother is the one that is that is cheered on and, and celebrated in every way. The younger brother is invited in and elevated. Because God's trying to break down the system. And the only person that actually fits the requirement of never making a mistake and you know following all the rules and always being hard at work is Jesus. <laughs> And I mean, he has every, every right to be like, you know what, Like, I haven't made mistakes and I don't want to be around these people and I don't want to celebrate these people and I don't want them in. But we see constantly in his life and his ministry that he was celebrating the younger brothers, that he was wrapping his arms around the younger brothers, that he was pursuing the younger brothers. And it's hard because I feel like Maybe it's been communicated by, by a church experience that you've had or, or a Christian that they've treated you like the younger brother and like they're the older brother. And yet if Jesus is the only real older brother, he doesn't treat us the same way. He doesn't treat us with that same content. Because Jesus, who's the only one that could put himself in the older brother's shoes, refuses to act like the older brother. And instead, if you actually dissect this story... The only role that Jesus actually filled, the, the one that his life shows that he fills, is he actually fills the role of the fattened calf. Because calves weren't the only animals that, that were set aside at birth for a special purpose. Uh, lambs, actually, in Jewish culture were also set aside for a special purpose. There was this lamb that, that in Hebrew they called the lof." And this lamb, they would t- take it at birth and they would set it aside in a stall, much like the fattened calf. And, and when you keep a lamb in a stall, it's, it's great because it never gets dirty, right? It's never in the mud, and the rain, and the weather. It's, its wool is never getting full of, of prickers and, you know, all kinds of twigs and all these things. So it was kept spotless in this stall. And then it was, it was fed this rich food. And so we know that Jesus was kept spotless. He, he, he lived his life following the rules and and being kind and generous and, and showing the heart of God, which made him spotless, and then fed the richest of foods. We knew that Jesus was fed the richest of foods, not literally, but spiritually. He fed his heart with the richest of food because he was constantly talking with God and being like, man, life is hard. I understand it now. I'm going to spend time and talk with you so that I'm fed up, so I have the energy and the nourishment to face what life faces. There's that verse in Matthew, maybe you've heard it. It says, man should not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is Jesus saying, I am being fed by the riches of food because I'm spending time with my father. So what happened to this, this ma'alaf, this, this spotless lamb, this well-fed sheep? What was its end purpose in Hebrew culture? It was, its end purpose was sacrifice. And the word for the sheep, the, this ma'alaf, that's actually the word that we get the, the word manger from. And we see that Jesus, at birth, was placed in a manger, which comes from that sacrificial sheep. And what's one of his most famous names? It's the Lamb of God. Because he came, he, lit, he lived a spotless life, ate the riches of, of spiritual foods, and died. For an important purpose, to celebrate our homecoming to kick off our homecoming, to make it a clear message for everyone that heard. Man, they, 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 they celebrated his homecoming with the fattened calf. Man, they, God loves us so much. Man, this father loves his son so much. Jesus did this to reconcile us with God, to bridge the gap, to take us younger sons from a place of mourning and feeling like, man, I messed up and I'm not good enough to, to, to try the God thing, to try the church thing, to a place of celebration, from a place of exclusion on the outside looking into a place of inclusion. God broke down the system of having to be better than or good enough with the biggest sacrifice of all. The fattened calf was sacrificed so the son could be welcomed in. And Jesus laid down his life so that we could come near and come home again. To stop struggling, to stop living in in and misery, and, and wanting, and hunger, and to come home again, and to be not just a slave or a servant, but part of the family. And when we, when we allow ourselves to be caught in comparison, which tells us that we're not good enough, we extinguish the power of the gospel. We extinguish the significance of what Jesus did, because Jesus said, says, I'm celebrating, like I laid down my life to celebrate your homecoming, and you're saying you're still not good enough. i, I made the biggest sacrifice of all so that you could come home and you're still telling me that it, that it's not big enough, it's not, it's not good enough. And I get it because I, I know for me there's so many points in my life where I felt like I didn't want to be a part of religion and God because I still have so many questions and I still like I don't, I don't know if this is for me, I don't know if this fits, but when I look at that, when I know without doubt what awaits me when I turn back, when I lean in, when I listen in, when I lean towards the source, I know, my, I know how I'll be received. And I also know how the world will receive me. The world's going to tell me I'm not good enough. The world's going to tell me I need to fix all these things about me, and I need to look a certain way and act a certain way and have a certain career and have this perfect relationship. And so the standard is I can come home and be celebrated or I can be out in the world and let that define me and just be downtrodden. I can be stuck in a system of never being good enough, or I can break free of the system and be celebrated and be home. So for me, I know that in my life and my struggle, between the two, the choice for me was clear because I want to choose wholeness over incompleteness. I want to choose the unwavering, unchanging love of God over the fickle-changing standard of the world. I want to choose peace and contentment over perpetual anxiety. And I, and I hope that through this that you guys know that you we have a choice as well between those things. And, and that there's more than being on the outside looking in. There's more than trying to live up to an impossible standard. And the choice is to lean in, to accept the value that God placed on us because he's never stopped looking for us. So that shows that we have tremendous value. To lean in to those truths instead of what the world wants to feed us, to lean in and to choose that peace and to choose that proclamation over anything the world wants to proclaim over us. So normally uh, we end services with communion, uh, but actually I just wanted to end it with a song because I feel like music can be really powerful and even if you can't sing your way out of a paper bag or anything like that, uh, we can still observe the words and let it sink in a little bit. And I think it's important because I mean this is this is a big deal. This is this is freedom from anxiety and, and depression and things because when we know who God says we are and we lean into that truth and we're we're freed from the comparison trap. So I wanted to have just a couple minutes with music that kind of reaffirms this so we can process that. Because it takes time to process. And so I'm just keeping you hostage, just a couple minutes longer. Uh, but we're gonna stand together in a moment after I pray, and we're just going to take in this song, and you can sing if you want or not if you don't want to. I just want you to, to think about that, to think about what lays outside of the comparison trap. What does God want to free you from? Uh, so we're going to have the band come and play this song, but first we're going to pray. Uh, God, we thank you that that you could have been the older son, that you could look down at us on scorn and disdain and, and be resentful that uh, we just aren't good enough and that we've made mistakes and strayed, but instead uh, you did everything you could to to reconcile us, to make us that bridge that leads back home, to, to kick off the celebration that just surrounds us with love, that covenant of of love and value. So God, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you, you gave the most so that we could receive the most. Because God, we know that when we're in the world, we're starving because the world is saying that that we are lacking so much. But when we're with you, we have everything that we could need because you say that we are enough. So God, help us to to free us from that comparison trap. Help us to free us from the lies that maybe family has told us or or co-workers, or the world has told us that we're, we have no value and that we're lacking. And help us to, to claim the value that you've placed upon our shoulders, God. Because it came at a great cost and we don't want to make light of that. God, just help these words that we're about to hear to, to sit in our heart and to resonate with our in our minds and souls in a way that maybe they haven't ever before. Because we want to lean into you. We want to be free from the comparison trap. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.